Hi, welcome to True Creeps, where the stories are true and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We're your hosts, Amanda, and I'm Lindsay, and we want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. Today, we are going to be talking about strange medical practices that are retired now for good reason. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for very good reason. For very good reason. What was cool about this episode is that we got to see a weird thing and then really just dive into that rabbit hole. And we could probably have a few episodes on this, but this is at least the very first one of, oh, no, this is how they handled this at one point. (laughs) There's a lot that's going to be like, huh. Why, why'd they think that? What What brought them to that conclusion? Huh. <laughs> of all the things you could think, that was the one you chose. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What a thing. But I feel like a scientist now. We've practically gone to med school now. I mean, <laughs> if these people could be physicians, I clearly am now a physician too. Yeah, clearly. Clearly. <laughs> I think that's fair. I'm not going to stop you. I mean, I wouldn't let you be my doctor. No one could stop me. And I am your doctor. <laughs> I am your doctor. (laughs) That felt like a threat, didn't it? Oh, it definitely was. I'll see you next week. (laughs) We're playing a doctor, apparently, next week. Hmm. Playing. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, so let's start in the 19th century when a drunk man decided it would be cool, you know, to hang out in a whale's carcass, as one does. As you do. And he was there for a few hours and he was like, you know, my rheumatism, a lot better now. Yeah. And I'm also sober now. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sober now. My rheumatism is better. It's probably because I was hanging out in a whale carcass. And rheumatism, if you don't know, (laughs) is a condition that causes pain and swelling in the joints. It typically affects places like the hands, the wrists, or the feet. The story and the cure first appeared in Australian newspapers in 1894, which it's long ago. But it's not long ago enough. Agreed. It then spread to New Zealand, America, and Europe. And then this became a practice for a while. And because people were like, I should just hang out in a whale carcass. That's what I should be doing to cure my physical ailments. And there was even an exhibit about it at the Australian Maritime Museum. And it's thought to have begun in the whaling town of Eden on Australia's southern coast. What a time. What a time for Australia. So let's talk about what the process was, because people were actually going and doing this. So what these people would do is when a whale would be killed, or if one died nearby, these people would get into a boat and go over to the whale, and then someone would cut a hole in the whale where these people would get out and jump into the hole of the whale. Makes sense. All that would show was their head. So like shoulders down would be encased in whale carcass. Delicious. Mm. It grosses me out so, so much. It should. Then this is where it gets even worse. They would be left there from about 20 to 30 hours. What are they doing in this time? Just chilling. What do you mean just chilling? Just chilling. Do they have meals? What if they have to go to the bathroom? (laughs) I don't I don't know. I did not. Are they just messing themselves? I hate phrasing it that way, but it feels like the only way. Can you imagine how soggy your entire body would be? I would imagine it is the full body equivalent of when you're washing dishes and you touch food debris. Yeah. And, you know, oh, I'm like wiggling my fingers at Amanda in like discomfort. That's what I imagine is it's your whole body feeling that way. Right, right. I was like, 20 to 30 hours is quite a long time. I don't know if they broke that up because when I was researching it, it looked like it was for two hours, but then every other place said 20 to 30 hours for it to really, really work. So I'm like, that's a really long time. And we're going to talk about where these people would go to get this done in a moment. But I guess what would happen is a decomposition of the blubber of the whale would then like close around the body and act like a huge poultice. I think I would faint. I would throw up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're just like making faces because it's so gross. Then I would be stuck in it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
they're not going to use one whale for one person. So then you're all around. Yes, all around different people. And everybody's peeing into the whale. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And everyone's throwing up on the whale. This is just very, I am really upset. (laughs) I'm upset. Yes. It's believed that the heat and the gases produced by the whale's decomposing body would create kind of like a sweat box environment just to make you throw up a little bit in your mouth. Sweat box. And it was believed that this would then bring relief from the aches and pains for up to a year. So like they're like, okay, I can go through hell for a little bit, but I'm going to feel good for a year after. I want you to picture this. You've got achy joints and you decide that for 30 hours, you are going to go sit in the decomposing body of a massive creature, here a whale, with a bunch of other fucking people, chilling, presumably pissing and possibly pooping yourself in this whale with other people. There is no way you are going to admit it didn't work. (laughs) So for at least a year, you can fake it. But after that year, you're like, Ugh, it must it must be coming back. Like, I would be intrigued on how many people did it twice. That's true. That's a good, good thought process. I think that I would lie. <laughs> if I did something that was that intense of an option, I would not be like, and it didn't even work. Mm-mm. Oh, right, right. Also, we're going to talk about the after effects in a moment. But yeah, that makes sense. So there is an old article from 1899 that reported a hotel in Australia that people suffering from this condition would go to to get this treatment. So like a bunch of people would be staying in this place and travel to this place specifically to have this done. And so like the hotel, I believe, would arrange it because like I said, there's some pictures, some old time pictures of it. And it seems like, yeah, they would like congregate and then they would row them out to these whales. Do you know what just occurred to me? Okay. They have this whale carcass that's decomposing. Okay. They have the first round of people there for 30 hours. It's not like they get rid of the whale. They probably bring a second group of people, a third group of people to go into the whale after other people have been in there doing awful things for 30 hours. So then you're the sixth person in the dead whale. I hope not. I don't know. Because it's a whaling community. So it's like, I think that they would get through them pretty quick because I think they'd use parts of the whale for other things. So I think it was just like an ongoing, there was always dead whales because it was a whaling community. They had to have used them more than once. Either way, it's disgusting and awful. Yeah, but the idea of being not first is so much worse in my head. It's pretty bad. So in 1902, a couple years later, this is still going on. That's too recent. There's an article in the graphic that included a cartoon-like picture of the process. My favorite part of it, there's like this like prim woman who has a hat on. (laughs) Yes. And there's a guy that's like leaning over to her, presumably trying to talk to her. and, And she's just like, I am not fucking having this. I am in a decomposing whale trying to have my body ache less. Can you fucking leave me be? And there's also like a guy that's like, showing off that his joints don't hurt at the end yeah he's like he's jumping and like swinging his legs out you know what it reminds me of he's jumping and swinging his legs in a very original charlie and the chocolate factory yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. willy wonka style that's the vibe i'm getting from this man yep yep and i love that like so it's like a story right it's like they go to get this um procedure done and as they're preparing for it too the doctor is holding a rag over his nose because it smells so bad and then it's about it's kind of hard to read it's very like tiny writing and old timey you know but (laughs) the part that you were talking about with the woman with her hat her fancy hat and the guy like leaning over the writing for this is a little bit bigger and it says but he forgot that his wife had a telescope and this is what she saw. So like he's like checking out this other woman while his wife's on shore in the hotel like, oh, he's going to get better and like watching him. You absolute scoundrel. <laughs> I, but yeah, you're telling me you're going to hit on a woman while you're sitting in a dead whale carcass. I'd also like to point out that he's shoulder deep and she's only waist deep. Yes. <laughs> so I guess maybe he had shoulder ailments and she had lower than her waist ailments. I don't know, but hmm. Hmm. definitely uh, an interesting, um, I don't know, it's like a comic, right? Like y- what you would see in the newspaper in a way. Yeah. So 
Luckily, as whaling declined in Eden, so did this practice. Shock. It pretty much was completely gone by the First World War. And some believe it was due to the after effects. And what the after effects were is the person would be super smelly for around a week or longer because of the decomposing whale like fats and stuff. Huh. What a what a thing. Yeah. Ugh, I still don't like it. It's so gross. So let's talk about teething. When I think teething and I think like old timey cures, what comes to mind is like in the not so distant past when people would rub alcohol on like infants gums. That is not where we're going. Oh, no, no. Starting in the 16th century, people started noticing that children that were aged six months to two years started dying. And so they started thinking that the children were dying due to teething because that's something that's happening during that time. And 16th century to 1900s is how long this is going to go on, what we're going to talk about in a second. So in England and Wales in 1839, they said teething caused over 5,000 deaths. In 1910, they said 1,600. That's wild. Which just a, a natural body process of teeth coming in. Yeah. And like statistics were all over the place because that's kind of a hard thing to pinpoint back then. Mm-hmm. So this is like estimates of what was thought at the time. Yeah. And so what they would do is they would do bleeding, blistering, or they would place leeches on the gums. And then during the 16th century, they introduced gum lancing. It's unknown how many children ended up dying from the infections that these methods caused. And when we mentioned that this went on for too long, lancing of the gums on a teething child was still included in dentistry textbooks in 1938. That's way too long. Way too long. I will say too, a baby that teethes, even from when Oliver was a baby, which was only seven years ago, mm-hmm. has already changed what people are doing. Really? Which is very interesting to me. All of this is really sad and terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. They're already in a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I'm going to make it super fucking worse. Right. Or like their gums could be like red or puffy or whatever, and they're not necessarily teething yet. It could have been that they hit it on something. It could be, you know, so many different things. And then they're like, oh, time for teething. Let's lance them open. Yikes. So glad we're not doing that anymore. Speaking of teeth, we have some very exciting news in the Mednansky household. And that is Ali has lost a tooth and not swallowed it. (laughs) Yes. And that is a very big deal. (laughs) Because how many teeth? I was like, fifth tooth, first one that he did not swallow. Yeah, this is the fifth tooth. First one I've actually seen. Yeah. And he ran in our room at like 3.30 in the morning. He's like, guys, I lost a tooth. So like he's sleeping and loses a tooth and knows not to swallow it. But when he's fully awake at school, he eats them. Was he eating when he did it? (laughs) He's always eating. The kid's always eating. I don't even think he notices until it's gone. And he's like, oh, hmm, guess I don't have a tooth now. I love how unfazed by dental things he is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're doing great. Because I mean, like. I had like a tooth crack while eating an embarrassingly not hard food. And I was like, oh, am I garbage? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I mean, as an adult, you get like, yeah, there's a lot of tooth shame. You're you're not getting treated for losing your your teeth at that point. No one's like, oh, you broke a tooth. Here's five dollars. They're like, you broke a tooth. That's going to be a thousand dollars to fix. Exactly. Exactly. There's no happiness with that. Yeah, no, 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 not at all. And it's going to take way too long. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I get that. I get that. So let's move away from teeth. Never. And let's talk about, let's talk about how a magic talisman could treat malaria. Ooh, fancy. Yeah, yeah. So you know the word abracadabra, right? Of course. Heard it. Yep. Mm -hmm. Well, many do not know that the term might actually have some medical origins. I was one of these people. I just thought it was like a magician, wizard type thing. Never associated it with medical stuff ever. And it's even thought of as an ancient medicine. Okay. Okay. We're intrigued. (laughs) And what we're treating today is malaria. There's a lot of different theories as to where this word originated completely and like what its meaning is and, you know, how it came about, when it came about. But today we're talking medical terms. So a Roman physician, Quintus Serenus Simonicus, was a second and third century scholar. He published his teachings in a form of didactic 
poetry. In his only surviving work, De Machina Precapta, known as Liber Machinalis, he describes some remedies and antidotes. But there's one that really stands out because it's used in the treatment of semi-tertian fevers, which is now called malaria. So basically what you do is you write the word abracadabra, which is A-B-R-A-C-A-D-A-B-R-A on a piece of paper and repeat the word underneath, but remove the last letter from the word on the line before. If you wrote abracadabra on the next one, you would write abracadabra (laughs) and then abracadabra and so on and so forth. And you would do it again until you were just writing an A and it would make a narrow cone shape. Then you take that paper, fold it up and you wrap it in linen and tie it around your neck. And that is the talisman that you create. And that was meant to be worn around your neck for nine days. And after nine days, you would fling it over your shoulder into a river that ran eastward. And this is assuming a lot of information known about geography. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Serena's did not give an explanations for the specifics in this. It was just like, this is what you do. <laughs> sure. Clearly. Yeah, that's what you do. That's why I am now a doctor. Yeah. Because I can tell you about random rivers to do things in and not know anything if that river even exists. Yeah. And you don't need to worry if this didn't cure your malaria because there was a second option. And of course, that was lion's fat. Of course. You just (laughs) apply it to your body. (laughs) And for those who didn't have lion's fat just laying around, don't worry. You just take the skin of a cat and you tie it with yellow coral and green emeralds and you put it around your neck. You know, other things that you would have lying around your house. Casual green emeralds, cat skin. Of course. Abracadabra was used as a talisman against a variety of illnesses well into the 17th century. I just love that people were like, done and done. I'm going to write a word a bunch of times, wear it around my neck, throw it into a river. Good to go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And this information can be found on the National Library of Medicine as well. Just saying. Fascinating. What a thing to think of. What a thing to think of. Mm Mm-hmm. When I first came across that online, I was like, this is wrong. Like, this isn't a thing. Yes, makes sense. And then I had to keep searching it in different ways. I was like, that part, someone probably just made this article and they're like, how many fucking people are going to believe this shit? And then I'd search it again and I'd find it on a medical thing. And I was like, okay, okay, maybe, maybe the talisman, I can get behind that. But like the lion's fat and the cool jewelry that you make, I was like, that that's not part of it. And then I was like, oh... Oh, it was. It was part of it. The name of the game here is accessories. They still die pretty. So let's move on to another thing that is crazy that it existed. I mean, I see why it existed, but like its effects weren't great. The name of this was Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup, which sounds great, right? Mm Mm-hmm. In theory. (laughs) Charlotte N. Winslow, a pediatric nurse, so you should be able to trust them, right? Created this product as a cure-all. For fussy babies, which again, like if this was working and didn't have some bad effects, every person would be like, please take my money. Mm-hmm. It was first produced in 1849 by her son-in-law, Jeremiah Curtis, and his partner, Benjamin Perkins in Maine. It was marketed to North America and the United Kingdom. And here's what it was marketed towards, right? You could help your children in many different ways. You can calm them. You can clean their teeth. You can help when they have teething pains. You can freshen their breath, relieve constipation. Literally anything that's wrong with the kids, you would give them soothing syrup. It's to soothe them. When you hear it cures everything, it's either a lie or booze. And there's no in between. It's not necessarily to cure it, it's to soothe them from like the pain and being cranky and fussy because of their pain. I said what I said. (laughs) And the marketing materials were all over the place. Like they would show peaceful babies with their mothers and they put this on like everything. There was trading cards, there was calendars with it, just everything you saw, soothing syrup. And it was known as a patent medication. I was like, what the hell is that? So Patent medications were medicines that could be purchased without using a prescription, so over-the-counter. And typically, these types of medications did not prove efficacy or safety. It was just like, take this. It'll help. And you're like, cool. So these types of medications were usually protected and advertised by a trademark, and they were rarely actually patented. Consumers really didn't know what the contents of these medications were. It was just, you know, it's everywhere. You're seeing pictures of soothed babies. You're like, how can I get my baby to calm down? So. 
Interestingly, it wasn't until Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act in 1906 that made it a requirement to list ingredients on product labels, including opiates. I mentioned it before, and no one is surprised that it contained alcohol, but it also contained morphine. So you can bet your bippy you were going to feel soothed. And there was 65 milligrams of morphine per ounce, which is a super dangerous dose for kids. One teaspoon had the morphine content of the equivalent of 20 drops of laudanum or an opium tincture. And it was recommended that six-month-old babies receive no more than two to three drops of laudanum. So, okay, we are almost seven times that. And that's on top of the fact that even a small amount of morphine can be fatal to children. And one teaspoon contained enough morphine to kill the average child. That's so scary. That's terrifying. And not surprisingly, many children died. Babies would fall asleep after taking the medication and never wake back up. And that's what made it become dubbed the baby killer. That's so sad. However, surprisingly, it was super popular And in 1868, it was reported that it sold more than 1.5 million bottles annually. I'm surprised there wasn't more deaths. You know, like if it was so widely used, so many kids were very lucky that they didn't die from it. I'm assuming a lot of people like adults were taking it too. Yeah, I think that chances are adults were taking because they realized it was like, oh, this works for me. But also people could have also been giving a portion of a dose for whatever reason, whether it was the cost of it or they noticed that the first time they gave it to their kid, they like passed out for a full day. Yeah. Many caregivers did not link the syrup to the deaths of the children. So there's not really an accurate number of the children that died from it. But there are thousands of children who are estimated to have died, overdosed, became addicted or suffered withdrawal from the medication. Over time, Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup was forced to remove the morphine from its ingredients and remove the word soothing, which would mean it was just alcohol. If it was alcohol and morphine before, it was denounced by the American Medical Association in 1911 because of its dangerous combination of ingredients that did lead to infant deaths. And it was removed altogether in the 1930s. That's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. That's wild. The way that we view children now is also very different from how we view children 100 years ago. We grew up as a generation that when you hurt yourself, you're fine, (laughs) right? You're fine. You're fine. Yeah. You're sad. You're fine. (laughs) And like 90s kids, right? Like that's just, you're fine. But that's like, even that's a lot compared to if you're thinking early 1900s where kids worked in factories and the concept of childhood yeah. is a relatively new phenomenon, at least in America. Yeah. And so I can see how they may not have realized, oh, it's this. Especially if you're considering they were likely giving them the soothing syrup because of an ailment. So it's not altogether strange that they might think that they died from the ailment. Or immediately, like a one-two punch, lancing a kid's gums. And then you give them the soothing syrup for after. And it could be an infection. It could have been the soothing syrup. It could have been a lot of things because medicine was wily. Yeah. I'm just surprised. I'm just surprised we're all here today and alive because of all the things we're talking about today. But this this next one in particular is the reason why this turned into an episode. Because we're like, what did they do? (laughs) I was like, they used what? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's talk about transfusions. And we're going to give you a little bit of a brief history on them. In 1628, the English physician William Harvey discovered the circulation of blood. Shortly after this discovery, blood transfusions were attempted in various ways. In 1665, that was the first recorded blood transfusion, and it was done between canines. And reading about this was horrific. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't understand why they're like, let's see if this works. The dogs didn't do well. It was it was very sad. It's good that it exists nowadays, but it's sad how it came about. Yes, yes. Jean-Baptiste Denis in France and Richard Lower in England reported, at separate instances, successful transfusions from lambs to humans. Define success. Yes. So Denis' infusion was done on an unnamed 15-year-old boy. 
who was bled during a medical procedure, but he was suffering from blood loss because bleeding was also a thing at that time. Luckily, when he did this transfusion, it was only a very small amount and the boy lived. And I saw various different reasons like why he lived. And it was either like his body was young enough to like fight Mm -hmm. what was going into him and that it was such a small amount that it wasn't that big of a problem. But had they used more of it, he probably would have died. Yeah. And then to just go on kind of on topic, off topic, because we're talking about Denny's, he did end up killing two people. One was named Gustav Bond and the other was Anthony Mahua. And during Anthony's transfusion, he attempted to cure mental illness by replacing his bad blood with good blood. Mm. That make you like ugh, uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable and I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. So what he thought at this time was that if he used an innocent or a pure animal, the animal's blood would counteract the things in the man's blood that was making him act badly. It is not the worst logic that I've heard. If you're thinking there is something inherently wrong with humans and it makes you bad. And if you think like people would use like animal blood and sacrifices and things like that, I could see how you could think it is purer. There aren't evil animals. Like they don't have the capacity for evil. I don't know. I don't know. Poor Moro. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So what he chose was a calf. So he ended up using five to six ounces of calf blood. And when Antony began to sweat profusely, they stopped the procedure. But then they continued it the next day. And the patient seemed more docile and less, quote unquote, mad. Because he was dying. Exactly. He ended up dying shortly after, and that would make sense. He was probably shutting down. Even weirder. So ended up going to trial, right? Because they they thought, okay, Denny's is actually like killing people with this. There's a trial, and he was found not responsible, and they ended up blaming arsenic. But because of all this anyways, the court did ban transfusions for a while. So let's talk about the other doctor that I mentioned, Richard Lower. His infusion was attempting to use lamb's blood in a patient that was Again, mentally unstable. And his name was Arthur Koga. His hope was the same thing, that the lamb's blood would cure this man's mental illness. Luckily, this man ended up surviving, but it didn't do anything to help his mental illness. These people, though, paid Koga and they gave him 20 shillings for the experiment. Within about 10 years, though, this got shut down because of all the reactions that people were having and or deaths. Okay. And I just want to point out, it's just interesting as we're talking about this, we keep talking about that there's something wrong with the blood and mental illness. We're linking these two. And this is where the idea of bad blood comes from. Like the phrase bad blood is from people thinking that mental illness is due to your blood. Oh, wow. Right? Interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting takeaway. Yeah. So now we're going to we're we're continuing with transfusions, not Where do we get this phrase from? So let's skip to the late 19th century when we thought, you know what, animal blood, it's not doing it. You know what we'll use? Milk. Obviously. Obviously. So in 1854, in Canada, scientists tried to use cow's milk. And particularly, it was Dr. James Bovell and Dr. Edwin Hodder. And they were the first ones to do it. And they believed that the fatty and oily particles in the milk would become white blood cells because, you know, they're white. Right. I can't see why they're like, huh, this is kind of similar. It'll probably transition into what we need it to be. Why not? Yeah, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. The first patient was a 40-year-old man they injected with 12 ounces of cow's milk, which it's not a lot of milk, but it's not not a lot of milk. Exactly. Yeah. And then he did well, but like, how well could he have done? Like, I'm assuming well means he didn't die. Yeah. Yeah. And then not surprisingly, the next five patients did die. Despite these deaths, the treatment was popular in the U.S. between 1873 and 1880. For a full seven years, they were pumping people full of fucking milk in their veins like it was a good idea. Ugh. And generally, North America seemed to embrace it to treat things like tuberculosis. Weird. Oh, my God. So after the transfusions, patients would complain of chest pains, headaches, and have repetitive and involuntary eye movements. Many of them died. You don't say. I don't understand why they were like, yep, this will work. And then as they're doing it, all these people are having so many different issues. But they're like, well, they're living, so 
cool. And now when they start to die. Can you imagine your fucking poor heart? It's like, what the fuck is this? It's just like they make you into cream of human soup. Yeah. Don't do this. Mm -mm, mm -mm. So, okay. Remember, we're in the 1800s. They started this in 1854. By 1873 in America, they're like, yeah, this is what's up. And then in 1880, Dr. Joseph Howe's like, we should test this on an animal, and in particular dogs. All of the dogs died. So after he experimented on the dogs, he's like, you know what? The issue was that we were using animal milk. I bet we'd have better results if we used human milk. You know how I feel about breast milk being used for things other than feeding babies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he transferred three ounces into a woman with lung disease. Mm-hmm. She stopped breathing pretty quickly because that's not what you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he resuscitated her with artificial respiration and, what I saw, injections of morphine and whiskey. Oh, shit. Yeah. In 1884, they started to do saline infusion to replace the milk due to the increased frequency of adverse reactions. By the turn of the century, though, blood types were finally discovered. And they also discovered a safe and effective method to transfuse blood that wasn't milk or animal blood or any of that. Also, some of the medical devices they were using before they discovered how to do it now was a lot different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want nightmares, you just look at old-timey medical devices and you're like, oh. Oh, especially when it comes to blood. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 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 I had to take a break after reading some of them and because some of them were like, let's show you how they did it. And I'm like, no, thank you. No, thank you. I'm going to go hug my beagle now. Yeah, baby. So speaking of just very strange medical things that were done to people, another one that came up and I was like, this isn't real. This can't be. And then started reading. and I was like, oh, God. And that is a wandering womb. Wandering womb. Mm -hmm. How little men knew about women's bodies. Oh, I like that you said that in past tense. That was generous. Oh, I feel generous. Yeah, you're right. I was being nice. But like generous. When you think of things today, this was a whole other ball field. Like this is nonsense. This definitely was a way for them to um, control women from a long time ago. Right? You mean that men wanted to control women? <gasps> the first I'm hearing of this. <laughs> from the start. I'm a, I'm a real shipper mood today. I'm stirring. <laughs> so... <laughs> you know what? Reading this, I was very, very upset and angry because it's like, what the fuck? Yeah. This just, yeah, this is going to have you go, what the fuck? So we've all heard of Plato, right? Famous philosopher. Hmm? And we've all heard of Hippocrates, right? And, you know, he's just the dude considered to be the father of modern medicine. Yeah. Hippocratic oath. No, no biggie. No biggie. Yeah. Yeah. So these two thought that a wandering womb was a thing. I don't know why, but all I'm thinking of is Sisterhood of the Traveling Womb. That's not a thing, but like... <laughs> I mean, for for what they described, it might as well be, right? It's like the Blair Witch. Like, she's just like, making my way downtown, walking fast, you know? Yeah, as she does. So, according to some of their writing, when women were celibate for a while, their womb that was, of course, eager to bear children could dislodge itself and glide freely around the body. You may unfasten your seatbelts and wander around the cabin. That's what happened. Like a body announcement would come up and the uterus was like, it's my time. It was just wiggling around. It spends some time in your fingertips. Exactly. It just like bumps around. Yeah, your organs. (laughs) Kind of like, you know, the DVD screen from like the office. (laughs) I imagine that in your body. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was imagining just like the uterus is like just trying to squiggle into like as many. Like, you know how we want to see like every U.S. state. It's like I'm going to be in every part of the body. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it it would just get so bored because it didn't have a child in it that it would just wander around to find something to do. Have you seen those memes where it's like it's not really a meme. It's like an aesthetic where you see a woman who lo- looks like she's like dressed for Coachella and it says wanderlust. I'm picturing that <laughs> with a uterus. 
that that's what it was so (laughs) as it was wandering the body it would be bumping into like organs and causing shit to happen it would also cause things like suffocation hysteria which is kind of a topic of its own seizures and really anything all the way to death so what you're telling me is that these two men were like women get sick and like die how annoying what do you think it could be like it's not going to be things that like we get right and he's like no 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 definitely not and they're like that that doesn't happen to us it's probably an organ just wiggling around doing its thing it doesn't make sense that their body would function like a body they're not human oh absolutely not no and this this next one i like cackled when i read it The womb was also considered an animal within an animal. So when you say an animal within an animal, they actually believed that it was its own thing inside of your body that was alive. Why not? And had its own will. It would do what it wants. We'll find out more. I just find that to be wild. Because like, it's not as though it has a brain. It doesn't matter. It did what it wanted. Clearly. So the idea came from Arateus of Cappadocia. He also really thought that certain movements could cause ailments like if the womb moved up, it could cause sluggishness, lack of strength, and vertigo. That other movements could cause, quote, a strong sense of choking, loss of speech and sensibility, or even death. And I am just like, (laughs) maybe this person just like they're literally choking on something. And you're like, oof, probably the womb moving around. Yeah. I should just let you go ahead and die because what can I do about your wandering womb other than have sex with you immediately to make it stop? What could possibly be done? Yeah. So speaking of. Exactly. How did you prevent your womb from wandering? I feel like I should phrase that how like old timey like it didn't exist during this time, but like an old timey like cosmopolitan magazine cover. Yeah, yeah. Who would be on the cover? How can you prevent your womb from wandering? Oh, I don't know. Two men, probably, because, like, you don't want to see a woman's face. (laughs) Exactly. Right? And so women, or girls, we should say, were told to marry as early as possible and to get pregnant as soon as possible so that their womb wouldn't wander. And that they should also be pregnant as much as they possibly can to keep that womb busy. Yeah, yeah. And that they should have a lot of sex. And this was also a prescription. Reading this, I just sat there making faces at my screen. And that's kind of what we're doing right now at each other. Boy, the civilization that Wonder Woman comes from, the Amazonians, sounds like attractive knowing this. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Again, I am surprised we are all alive right now. Just a testament to the fortitude of people with wombs. So what's a person to do if their womb breaks free? They could be prescribed therapeutic baths, infusions, which we're concerned because we just talked about infusions. Mm-hmm. And I'm look, I'm wondering what we're being infused with. There was also descriptions of what we're going to call massages that would help get it back into place. And you can read into that as you will. And again, remember, this is a living creature. And it, of course, likes sweet, fragrant smells and didn't like bad smells. So because of this aversion to bad smells, where did they not want the womb to go? Up. So they would put things that smelled bad, you know, near the womb owner's nose, and then would put pleasant smelling lotions and such between their thighs and on their genitals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was alive, so it would definitely... Go towards the sweet smelling things, right? I wonder if this is where the idea that that region should smell like like a nice spring day comes from. Maybe. That would make a lot of sense. Sense, in quotes. <laughs> and by keeping these pleasant smelling things near where the womb should be, it would lure it back to where it should go, nestled into the pelvis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then... They finally realize, oh, it, it, it doesn't actually move. It just appears like it might be moving because of the tendons eventually. And then, you know, from there, we learned a little bit more. If you're thinking that we are the same species, wouldn't you find it highly alarming that one of us can live with a wild creature in our body? <laughs> Once they started learning a little bit more, not much, but a little bit more, they, they started to understand, okay, maybe it's not so much wandering. 
so they stopped blaming physical ailments on the womb. But then I know I touched on hysteria earlier. Then they started blaming psychological ailments on the womb. My eyes twitching. (laughs) It couldn't possibly be anything else. It couldn't possibly be the oppression. No, not at all. Maybe Agnes isn't happy because gestures to the past and present. (laughs) Yeah. So interesting. I had never actually heard that part of history before. And when I found it, I think I spent half my day yesterday just like, what? What? Why? Yeah. Yeah. So those are the, the bulk medical history pieces we're going over today. But because we found this very interesting, we thought it would be fun to take some of the medical treatments that we found from a book published in 1910 and discuss them. They're not as, uh, some of them aren't as deadly, but just very strange. And we're not sure how they got started. Yeah. But the book is available on Google, which is hilarious because I sat there for a while reading pieces of it. And like I said, it's from 1910 and it's by Dr. Thomas Jefferson Ritter. And it's called Mother's Remedies, Over 1,000 Tried and Tested Remedies from Mothers of the United States and Canada. It doesn't seem like that long ago. It has an area in the book called Manners and Social Customs, and that is by a woman, Mrs. Elizabeth Johnstone. Of course it is. But it does say, and various other departments. It is a wild thing to look at. Um, It also, I love that they started with medical department, right? And we're just looking at the table of contents. And then there's a whole area that's just women's department and (laughs) diseases of women. (laughs) Like, it's not that we don't have unique diseases, but like, (laughs) don't take into account any of this other stuff, because that's not how women... no. That doesn't apply to you. <laughs> yeah, silly, silly geese. <laughs> so when we're looking at the table of contents, I do want to say that on page 666, by the way, it talks about the hot springs of Arkansas. And I'm wondering, uh, as I'm reading this, if they're talking about what we spoke about in the Crescent Hotel episode. Oh, I bet they are. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, it totally is. It talks about how the healing waters helped or could help. Hmm. Anyways, let's get to some of the remedies. Can I just very quickly in the manner section, there's a section that says, incruity in dress. A man must avoid incruities in dress. Tan shoes are inadmissible with a formal afternoon dress. They do not accompany a silk hat. A lawn tie is never worn save the evening clothes, nor a turn down collar with them. Gloves should be inconspicuous. A man's hands encased in bright tan gloves make mon... <laughs> <laughs> you're not on this page right because it's what a ride (laughs) okay okay no a man's hands encased in bright tan gloves make (laughs) i'm trying to say it not laugh a man's hands encased in bright tan gloves make one think of sugar cured hams (laughs) (laughs) well what else would you think of the tuxedo is a dinner coat hence never worn before six o'clock it must not be worn at a theater party or if a man escorts ladies it may be worn in the summer at informal dinners and at summer hotels silk hat white waistcoat or white lawn tie are not correct wear with a tuxedo (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and in the women's section at one point (laughs) there's a lot of exclamations for women but every detail from shoes to hats should be harmonious and suited to the occasion and consequently the hour of the day but how many many violations of this rule we see ostrich feathers worn with shirt waist low shoes on the street dressy hats in the morning jewels at breakfast all inappropriate and unrelated i love when your accents come out <laughs> like you <laughs> this person as they're writing it is getting themselves upset the correct streetwear in the morning in the winter is a tailored suit with a medium-sized hat in felt or beaver, <laughs> walking shoes and rather heavy gloves in glace, kid. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, yeah. This, like I said, this is a read and it's available on Google and you'll have the link in our sources. Please do not seek medical advice from this, by the way. Please. 
It's killing Lindsay. Good taste and modesty forbid too lavish a display of shoulders. <laughs> Stay tuned for after the episode because Lindsay <laughs> just gave the performance of her lifetime. I mean, it was great. It was probably my favorite. So, what a time. What a time. Like I said, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, social etiquette in there and a whole section on women's ailments that I sat and read way too long yesterday and laughed a lot. But let's talk about some very uh, common ailments and how to fix them according to this book. Again, do not take any medical advice from this book. Yeah, this this is not good advice. <laughs> It is not good advice. So, Lindsay, are your hands chapped at all? Dry? I am indoors and live a delicate life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you journey outside in the cold ever, I have the solution for you in your chapped hands. Fantastic. What you're going to need is sour cream, a cloth, and a shovel. Good news is I keep all three of those in my shed at all times. (laughs) Excellent. So what you'll have to do is you'll have to wrap the sour cream in a cloth, go outside, bury it with your chapped hand. (laughs) Yeah, you have to earn it. Which is, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot. So you're going to go to bed after because you're going to be real tired. But when you wake up, I'm going to give you some more work. You're going to go and you're going to dig that shit back up. Of course. And then you're going to apply this nasty cream to your hands. Dirt sour cream. Perfect. 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 Well, it's wrapped in a cloth, so it'll be okay. It'll just be more curdled. It's going to smell fantastic. You're welcome. Uh, what should I do if I have a sore throat? Oh, well, great news. I have the solution for you. Okay, great. Into this book. It starts with steam. Okay, with or without medicine. Fast and loose. Love it. And then it goes into a little story about treating a man with terrific laryngitis. And it says, quote, all the parts were so terribly swollen that he was unable to swallow or talk. All the parts. So the solution was the man was told to inhale steam from a tea kettle by putting his mouth over the spout. Which in my head, I'm like, ouch. That sounds horrible. Ouch to the hot metal and ouch to steam that hot. That's how summers in Arizona feel when you open your door. Anyways, so this dude, you know, (laughs) put his mouth on a tea kettle and he was relieved in a few minutes. And the book says, this is my favorite part, and I cackled, quote, I think it saved his life, which seems very dramatic. For a sore throat? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) my favorite. So it also goes on to using salt, mixing sulfur with cream. And there's like a red pepper recipe, which I'm like, "Eh, I've never tried it. Who could know? But then we move on and we get a little drastic here. I was hoping we would. (laughs) They recommend treating it with cocaine. So it recommends that when there is great pain in swallowing, cocaine painted on the throat or sucking a cocaine lozenge will help. A cocaine lozenge. Yep. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cocaine painted on the throat. So if you just go grab some cocaine real quick, we'll fix you right up. That sounds like a lot of cocaine. It does sound like a lot of cocaine. I was curious because I was like, all right, everyone knows like, Right. Coca-Cola. Coke had cocaine in it a long time ago. Right. But I was like, I never really thought of other items having cocaine in it a while back. So some common household items were also toothache drops, eye drops and cigarettes. Eye drops. Yeah. Now, when I was looking up the eye drops, I did notice that cocaine eye drops are still used as a local anesthetic during some eye surgeries today. What a time. So let's talk about what they were doing for asthma. Some of the methods were relatively normal because it focused on the cough that comes along with asthma, which feels reasonable, which are you asthmatic? No. Okay. I didn't realize I had athletic induced asthma, which doesn't sound like a thing, but it is until I was an adult. Boy, do I have the cure for you. I, I'm going to cure it. But I'll tell you, though, that like that cough that comes with it, it's kind of a terrifying cough because you're like, my lungs are not doing what a lung do. And 
it's a cough that's born of like not being able to breathe. It feels like when you're sick and you're coughing and you're like, I might throw up. I'm coughing so hard. This feels different. Yeah. When I was little, but I think I grew out of it. Luckily, I wasn't diagnosed with asthma until I was an adult. And I thought everyone when they like exerted themselves and exerted their lungs was like, I can't breathe. So I was like in my 20s when I was like, oh, that's a thing. This is it normal. Not everyone is feeling this way. But anywho, look, yeah, a little asthma. You're just going to do a little a little inhale <laughs> of chloroform <laughs> or you break an amyl nitrate pearl into a handkerchief and then you inhale the fumes. It has other names like oh. poppers, purple haze and liquid gold. All very jazzy. And nowadays, recreationally, it's inhaled directly and used to enhance sexual activities. Another option was to smoke a cigarette. Brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) But it has to contain stramonium, also known as thorn apple. And so we looked up what that was, and it's Jimson weed, which you say Jimson, I hear Jimison. But Jimson weed is a plant that grows in the world, and it's ingested to induce hallucinogenic effects. So can you just imagine, like, I'm having an asthma attack. Now I'm having an asthma attack and hallucinating. That's way fucking worse. You're going to forget about your asthma attack real quick, though. Cured. Cured. No, you're not. Because now there's, like, wild things in your vision and you can't (laughs) breathe. What a time. What a time. 1910 wasn't that long ago, guys. My goodness. If you'd like to hear more about this book, Lindsay and I did continue this conversation after the uh, credits. (laughs) So that about wraps up our exploration into weird medical shit of Of old old times. times. If you are enjoying the show, we would very much appreciate if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find us. And if you send a screenshot of your review and shoot us an email with your mailing address, we'll send you a sticker as a little thank you. Also, we do have a Patreon with a bunch of cool different tiers and perks, including our Patreon-only Discord. We have it in our show notes, but the tiers range from $1 and up. So, for just $1 a month, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And I just sent out our patrons their new sticker for the year for the ones that signed up in March. And it's adorable and I love it. So, if you did just receive your sticker, show us where you put your sticker. Tag us. Yeah. We're excited. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. And as always, a special thank you to our patrons who support us via Patreon. Please see the link in our show notes to learn more about how you, yes, you, can begin to haunt the dump, guard vortexes, or even become a scorching Sasquatch. Also in our show notes, you can find the link to our website, more information on our sources, our social media handles, and our merch store. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps and or ghosts. I beg of you. (laughs) At one point, I read something about how men thought that women were just like deformed men. Isn't that rich? Considering that womb owners can actually create life. Yeah, yeah. Can actually bring forth life. Like the reason for the species is that. Yeah. Sperm owners cannot create a a life inside their body, period. Versus womb owners can simply take a like a biological sample, pop it in, and do it on the do it themselves. I mean, it's still wild times, honestly. Yeah. The fucking audacity. The audacity. So in my head, you know how like people are like Foster's Australian for beer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whale carcasses. Australian for rheumatism cures. <laughs> That's now like but in that guy's tone <laughs> and in his <laughs> I mean yeah. Aussie accent that I can't do. Oh, I was really hoping. We got accents last last week. We had like a, was it transatlantic? Like, is that what it's called? Like the vaguely aristocratic, but not voice. Yeah, we got that and we got a newsie. <gasps> we did have a newsie. And by last week, do you mean two weeks ago, three weeks ago? What is time? that We're recording this the week that 
the Crescent Hotel comes out. So that is what we're referencing. Oh, yes, yes. So it's a few weeks ago. Who could know? Time is weird. We've banked some episodes because we're doing traveling. And so we're trying to get our ducks in a row. Who could know? No one. So let's go back to our uh, hanging out in a dead whale. But anyway, (laughs) continuing on. The face as an aid to beauty. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you just turn to any page, you're going to find some gold in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Poor circulation. Alcohol rub. Rub vigorous, vigorously night and morning with a good whiskey. Oh. Don't stop for a week or so after the patient looks and feels well. Rubbing with alcohol would probably be preferred. There's so many gems here. I'm just scrolling. I'm, I'm on page 690. The etiquette of calls. <laughs> As had, <laughs> Sorry. As has been said, a woman is expected to call on her friends once a year at least. Perfect. I am a fucking hermit. You will see me once a year. I love you. The day at home. (laughs) The day at home has rather gone out of fashion. Amanda, did you know? (laughs) Okay, so you know how there's like the yearly wedding gifts? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you know that there is a three days after you're married one? No. Sugar. Okay. And 60 days vinegar. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you about the time limit of a call? Yeah. The time limit of a call is 15 or 20 minutes, not to exceed the latter. This is the protection society affords us from bores. (laughs) You're only interesting for 20 minutes. We can endure even the most tiresome of visitors for 15 minutes. Uh, Gorgeous, 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 gorgeous. Oh, oh, God. Hold on. Wait, let me just see if there's any other gem here. Okay, it's just how to get. <laughs> it also goes on to say, like, if you're ditching someone that tries to come to your house, how to avoid them. Perfect. Money to children. Instead of paying children for doing work, let them understand that they have little duties that must be performed, but give them money at intervals. Teach them the value of money and the principles of saving. Okay. Oh, man, this goes into like wedding announcements and uh-huh. invitations and dinners and baby sleeves. Oh, man. Oh, oh! you know what? This is timely. The unexpected visit. Uh-oh. Nothing is worse. <clears throat> Nothing is worse form than the surprise visit. And that goes today. That, that continued on. Tea and coffee. Don't give your two-year-old child tea and coffee to drink. <laughs> what if she does cry for them? The crying will harm her far less than the drink. <laughs> what a time. Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh. I do like that there's a whole section on canning, and I would I would imagine that it actually works relatively well because they would have died if it didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Some hints on chafing dish cookery. I love the word cookery. Some favorite chafing dish concoctions. Cream sauce. It's just a roux. <laughs> Welsh rabbit. 100 choice recipes. What doesn't this book contain? It is everything. It is everything they ever needed. It has like children's parties, like birthdays, engagements, weddings. How to make apricot preserves. Recipes. Candy making. Yeah. Making fondant. What this makes me think of in a way is when uh, in the office when Jim makes the throwing a garden party book for Dwight. I vaguely remember this. Some of the way that this is written reminds me of that. Yes. Like, I'm going to read this to you and just tell me if you can understand what it's saying. Uses for men's worn out collars. Men's collars, when worn out, can be opened and bound together as a memorandum book, which can be laundered each Monday. I don't. (laughs) Okay. What a time. I don't even know what section I'm in. How many pages is this? Mother was busy. Oh, no. (laughs) Vagina. A sheath. The canal from the slit of the vulva. I gotta go. Okay. (laughs) Even Moo's like, what the fuck is happening? Look at her. She's like, mother, why? (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm thinking. A very light, dressy hat makes wrinkles more obvious. (laughs) Ermine furs, for instance, are absurd on a woman of 45 or 50. The dead white brings out the yellow in her complexion and the faded color of her eyes and hair. (laughs) Brutal. 
Shabby gloves are ruinous to a well-dressed appearance. <laughs> Some of these have to go after the, the credits, but or after our outro, but I just... Oh, yeah. She is getting upset. She likes your um, accent. When you speak in the accent, she gets all excited. She's like, "What? what's happening? Mother... And it is very important that a woman should know what to what not to see. The art of not hearing. Yet she should never overlook anything vital. I think that means let him do what he do and fuck off. Slang we are often reminded is common is common meaning vulgar. I'm sorry. We were talking about medicine, and I. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. I'm I'm lost. I'm lost in this. Do it. Bar. Capybara, 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 That's been stuck in my head so much. And when I forget about it, I see your post and it happens all over again. Capybara. I mean, I never let Ben forget. I'm just like, sing it. And he's like, capybara. No, my friend put it on his soundboard and got banned for three days. Perfect. Oh, am I garbage? <laughs> End of episode. <laughs> <laughs> End of episode. Like, what? <laughs> Sounds good to me.